The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In my experience as a journalist, if you ask people in my profession who they admire the most, an awful lot of them will say Michael Lewis. Michael is a a legendary figure in long-form journalism and non-fiction writing. His books on everything from sport to science to high finance to the mysteries of modern government take very difficult subjects and turn them into readable page turners with compelling characters and gripping plots. His latest book is somewhat unusual in that its central character has been all over the news for the last year or so and is currently the defendant in a New York courtroom in what, were it not for Donald Trump, would definitely be the most high-profile trial of the year. Michael Lewis, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This book, which is called, I should say, should tell our listeners, is called uh, Going Infinite. It's about Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm sure some of our listeners will have heard about him. As I said, he's in a courtroom at the moment. But maybe you could just, for those who don't, give a, a quick pen picture of who he is. Yeah, you've never heard of him before. Uh, it, it's, uh, he, he is the founder of a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX, founded in 2019. Before that, the founder of a crypto hedge fund called Alameda Research. He's 31 years old, born and raised in Palo Alto, California by two Stanford uh, tax law professors. Um, to the bewilderment of his parents, at the age of 28, became the richest person in the world under 30. Forbes magazine had him at, as a result of his crypto exchange worth $22.5 billion. Um, so it goes, goes from nothing to $22.5 billion faster than anybody has ever done that. And then last November, the cryptocurrency exchange collapses when there is a run on the deposits and the deposits aren't there. Uh, and so he, uh, so he went from being maybe the most sensational wealth creator in history 
to one of the most sensational financial scandals in history. So it is a story of high drama, and it's a, that's why I say it's a little bit different from some of your other books. I mean, we, we have talked about this previously, and you talk about how you, you find characters. You go out and you find characters, and those characters both essentialize kind of key things about the way modern life is and tell us something about it, but they're sort of fascinating in themselves, and you become, you become very enmeshed with them. You spend a lot of time with them, and then you kind of bring them to our attention, or at least that's my experience as a reader very often as somebody who I haven't heard of, and, and there's a fascinating story about them. This is different, though, because this guy was incredibly famous uh, when, you, when you met him for the first time, and his story has only got more and more high octane you know, this is So the different, you know, it's funny. For me, as a, just writing the thing, the biggest difference was that my, a lot of my readers would know who he was. Yeah. Uh, and normally I have characters, the readers have no idea who they are. I mean, it, it's maybe not completely true, but so, that's sort of true. And, and uh, when I met him, you know, I met him uh, just accidentally. A friend asked me to evaluate him for him, a friend who was going to do a business deal with him. And I'd never, he- I'd never heard of him. In September of 2021, I'd never heard of him or FTX. It, and it was, it was a recent sensation, and it was based in Hong Kong, and I wasn't paying all that much attention to cryptocurrencies. So he was a stranger to me when I met him. Uh, and uh, it, the, But the, the notoriety does present these challenges because some readers bring a lot of baggage to it when they when they read it. Yeah, but, I mean, we, we, but, we might come, come to actually some of that. that oh, yeah, about. totally. But just and, when you met him then for the first time, I mean, you told your friend, yeah, go all in. Yeah, give him the, give him the my money. friend said, should I do this business deal with him? And after two hours with, with uh, Sam Beckman-Fried, I said, what could go wrong? But that, Why did you say that? Um, what was it in those two well, hours? Well, in the first place, I, I knew that my whatever I thought wasn't going to make all that much difference. He was going to okay. do what he was going to do anyway, so it was kind of loosey-goosey. Uh, but but um, I thought he was, for someone who was in his position, shockingly transparent, open about his affairs, um, easy. He hadn't been, you know, what I was looking for, there were two things I was looking for. One I was looking for is this person seemed like he's been warped by his his success is it is this another pompous billionaire, and one of the disarming things about Sam Bankman-Fried is he just didn't let that happen. He was just he 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 was um, so he was authentic. He was Would authentic. That be fair? He, was, he was like he didn't know how to be anything but himself. And people, his like people who knew him in high school, he'd been a, a, a total loner in high school. I mean, an unbelievably isolated childhood. But people who knew him in high school were bewildered that he'd got himself in this position. And when they met him later, they assumed, well, he must have changed. He must have found a way to learn how to talk to people and things like that. And when they when they saw him, they said, no, he didn't change. The world changed around him. Uh, because his presentation, his public presentation, is, is of a sort of an overgrown teenage boy uh, with, with very limited social skills. And that's true. He was. He learned social skills. He learned some social skills, um, but he, you know he was dressing and he was just his mannerisms, all that. The, the, the talking a mile a minute, not listening that much to what you have to say. The, 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 it, he seemed he was odd. He was an odd person, but he seemed very much himself. And the other thing, when I learned what his business was, uh, and I, the, the constellation of of his affairs, he had this crypto exchange. On which, unlike like a stock exchange, the customers actually deposited their money, and so they held that money. And he had on the side of it his own trading firm. The business questions I asked were were about the conflicts of interest between those things, and the conflicts of interest that 
that everybody was, it wasn't just me, that everybody was kind of thinking was a problem uh, were, is this trading firm being given preferential advantage on the exchange in the same way that high-frequency traders in the United States are given preference on stock exchanges. Mm. It's it's legalized in the states. It's like it's built into the system. It's outrageous, but it's, but the the people who were investing in this were worried that that kind of thing was going on. No one imagined that the the deposits from the the exchange were just in the hedge fund. So he satisfied. He explained to me that the structure of crypto markets was different from the structure of stock markets, and you actually couldn't you you couldn't rig the trading in the same way because it took place in the cloud. It, it, it was very hard to predict the order of trades. For example, that came back out of the cloud. It was it was it it, it was. The problems that existed in the stock markets were very hard to replicate in the crypto markets. So that was the one question I asked him early on, and he satisfied my he satisfied my concern. Yeah, I have to admit, I still struggle with the whole blockchain, crypto. How the hell does this this world well, well, work? What underpins it? What well, are the laws? Well, that's all. Tr- that's a whole other subject. Like mm. crypto. So the business, his business, yeah, it, it didn't really depend. I mean, it depended on the existence of crypto. If if the whole crypto world collapsed and it just was crypto was worth zero, his exchange would be worth zero. But he had just built a casino for crypto to be traded in. And at the time I met him, the value of all crypto in the world was, I don't know, $3 trillion, and now it's maybe down to a trillion. It's still a lot. And if he hadn't screwed up his exchange, it would still be a very valuable business because people still want to trade this stuff. They need a casino. The, the business is come trade here and we take a little piece of each transaction. It's sort of the safest business to be in, much safer than like buying Bitcoin and watching it go up and down. Sure, because you're just taking this you're just tiny take, amount of just, very, very large stuff. That's right. And, hmm. and and at their peak, uh, FTX was trading $250 billion a month of crypto. So it just seemed that's if you're going to be in that racket, that seemed to be the way to be in that racket rather than just owning crypto. And then what happened was, perhaps related to certain changes that were happening in the in, in, in the global economy as well, rising interest rates, you know, the shape of the economy was changing in the, post, in the post-COVID era. But some doubts crept in among some of the people who were using the exchange. Those doubts were encouraged by competitors, maybe, and a run started yeah. on, on FTX. Uh, I suppose a little bit like a bank run, except I, I think an exchange works different from a bank, doesn't yeah, it? So, so exchange should work different from a bank. Mm. Uh, you're not lending your money to the exchange. You can. They were as a mechanism. You could tick a box and say, here, you can lend out my money and you'll pay me a rate of interest. And some small fraction of the people who had their money on the exchange, and there was maybe $16 billion on the exchange that was supposed to be held on behalf of customers. Yeah, it gives an idea that $16 billion is a small fraction. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, 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 but that money should have just been in kind of cold storage on the exchange. Okay. And the, the, what, they, what happens the minute the doubt creeps in, and doubt creeps in the crypto world, when it, when it creeps in, it, it doesn't creep, it runs. And again, there's been so many examples of these institutions unraveling that people are on kind of a hair trigger alert for a problem. So because last, the whole the whole world just started to interrupt, but the whole world you describe here and the talent which which this guy brings to that world is the ability to make these split second decisions and for most of them to be correct. They don't all need to be correct. Well, but everything is just everything is sort of hyper accelerated. Everything's hyper accelerated, but in, in part because it's not, it's not regulated, right? Yeah. If if there's a run on a a bank in the United States, the government can stand up and stop it 
with a sentence. You know, your, your deposits are protected. There's nobody in crypto to do that. So there's no regulator. There's no grown-up in the room. So it, once it starts, it tends to be, it, the panic moves very fast. Mm. And they had a problem. And this is, with the law, this is why he's likely going to go to jail. Uh, is is the, the, the money, there were lots of deposits. The depositors had not given permission for FTX to lend out. That FTX had lent out, and they'd lent it to Sam Bankman-Fried's private hedge fund. It essentially extended, extended a free loan without the knowledge of the depositors to his hedge fund. And it was complicated how that happened, uh, but it happened. And, um, and so, the, and the hedge fund... Is that fraud? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 um, yes, yes, it's fraud. Mm. Uh, it's, this is funny. It's fraud, fraud, you have to prove intent. So it's fraud if he intended to do this. The only argument you could make that it isn't fraud is he hadn't intended to do this. And it's very hard to argue that he hadn't intended to do this, but leave leave that to one side because the, because the, where, where it gets, where it get kind of interesting was at what moment, even the money's in the wrong place. The money's in the wrong place because it was histo- mostly historical reasons. When FTX was created as an exchange in 2019, it couldn't get bank accounts. So there, if you wanted to put your, your uh, euros into crypto uh, and you were wiring your euros to FTX, you couldn't. Alameda Research, his hedge fund, did have bank accounts. So you wired it to Alameda Research, and $8.8 billion piles up that way in Al- inside of Alameda Research and never gets moved over to FTX. So it never got to FTX in the first place. What he's up until about, I don't know, probably April of last year, there was more than sufficient funds inside of Alameda Research so that if you asked for your deposits. Everybody asked for their deposits back. They could have repaid them. Mm. Crypto collapses in May and June of last year. And he had, Sam Beckman fried in his hedge fund has put a lot of money into illiquid investments. Uh, venture cap, $5 billion of venture capital investments, for example, that just can't, they can't be easily unwound. So when the run happens in mm, November, uh, there is a there's some there's some money still there like the, the, the 16 billion they repay five right away, but there's if they freeze it with about 11 billion dollars uh, still to be repaid, and as we sit here now, this is why it gets so messy. There are uh, apparently eight in the end 8.6 billion dollars missing of customer deposits. However, the bankruptcy people have found 7.3 billion of it in liquid assets. This isn't going and clawing it back. It was there. And they're sitting on a pile of investments that seem to have well more than $1.3 billion in value. So, so it's people cons- might all get their money back. People might all get their money possibly. back. Possibly. Uh, very possibly, I think. If you talk to, there's a market in these claims. Like if you, I, I'm a depositor. I had a couple of thousand dollars on the exchange just to see how it worked. And uh, if I wanted right now to get out of that claim, I could get 40 cents on the dollar. But the, so you're, but that doesn't excuse it or actually, actually have oddly have any effect on his legal future. He, he's quite likely to go to jail for a long time. A crime time. is a crime, regardless of whether there was a, whether a, a the real end. victim so who it, suffered in the so end. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's funny. So it, it just makes it a little hard. It, it's just a little different than, oh, he stole the money because the money's still there. He, he he borrowed the money without telling them and put it at what he did is he put it at risk without anybody without asking their permission. I want to give our listeners just a sense of just how weird 
the world this world was you and know the 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 and, and the character himself yeah. the character and the world that he created around him he set up this the, the, these companies first of all in Hong Kong they couldn't really operate in the United States because of because of financial regulations there shifted them all to um, to the Caribbean in, uh, in the fall of 2021 yes and uh, and just the description of there are these kids basically they're mostly in their in their late 20s um they're they're making these billions of dollars they're living in these they're living like kind of in kind of college student style out of sleeping on beanbags in these expensive penthouse suites they are um a lot of them are committed to this particular philosophy um of a certain particular kind of this philanthropy is Im- this is important mm. this is important and you know, I found myself in the in the history of my books coming to Europe on book tours, and I often find myself telling Europeans um, what I'm in effect. I'm telling them some weird story about something that's happened in America, and then we're we're exporting to them. The, America is the source of the oddness. This is a case where the English are actually responsible. That effective altruism, this philosophy, is born at Oxford on the heels of the financial crisis. Roughly, almost exactly the same time that cryptocurrency is created, and uh, and the idea behind effective altruism it starts pretty simply and kind of innocuously. Oxford professor named Toby Ward makes the point that um, at very little cost to himself, um, he could do dramatic good for people he doesn't know, children in Africa, and that if he took he makes a calculation if he took uh, half his salary for the rest of his career. And, and put it and effectively donated it, he could prevent 80,000 African children from blindness. And this begins a raft of calculations about what, like, what the most efficient way to spend your philanthropy and, and what your duty is. Uh, like if, if you can save a life with a dollar, how could you possibly spend that dollar on a Starbucks latte, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they, they spin up um, an argument that and implicitly is that the way to lead your life is to maximize the number of lives you save with with, with with your charity. This morphs in a few years uh, into a, a new idea, which has odd effects on Wall Street, uh, called earn to give. And th- these philosophers go out and actually proselytize this idea to kids in the elite colleges who might go make a lot of money. And they say to these kids, if you are at all attracted to the idea of effective altruism, to sort of maximizing the good you're going to do for others on the planet, um, uh, and you, your first step might have been to, say, become a doctor to go save lives in Africa, um, reconsider that thought. Uh, instead, um, if Wall Street, say, has an appetite for your skills, go to Wall Street, make as much money as you can, and pay 20 doctors to go to Africa. So maximize your earnings and then direct the earnings to the to people who to the people who will actually do good. And this idea uh, it, it collides with Sam Bankman-Fried when he is a junior at MIT and he swallows it hook, line, and sinker. And it isn't just him. If there are the, the, the argument, and it's a kind of mathification of your of figuring out how you want to move through life. You you accept the principle that you you're here on Earth to maximize the good to others. The best thing you can do for others is save lives, is extend lives, their, their lives, their health, their, or their health. Um, and the most efficient way to do it is by making as much money, money as possible and donating it as effectively as possible. 
then it just becomes a numbers game. And it, this idea appeals to people who are quantitative people it, and, and, and people who... But the pe- people who, well, take Sam Bachman feed for example, people who in, in every other walk of life, it seems, entirely lack empathy. There's this disjunction there between there is, this this it, life commitment to doing nothing but good and, on the other hand, really being entirely uninterested in other human beings. This is a generalization and not true for all of them, but it is very curious how little um, the effect of altruists I met cared that much about other people personally and how much they cared just about humanity. And, and, and it, with one exception, they cared about each other. That they, yeah. It becomes a cult is too strong a word, but it had cult-like qualities. Cult is too strong a word because it was a little bit of an anti-cult because the, the, the spirit of the cult is we are, we're driven by pure reason. It's extreme rationality. Extreme rationality. So mm. if you can make a better argument about what we should be doing here, the cult might change. And, the, the, and it did change. It changed soon, right after Sam Bankman-Fried becomes a member of it. It isn't that someone makes the argument. And I can't remember who floats this argument in the first place. And the cult changes almost with a, it was almost like a, a bloodless coup of an idea. Um, someone says, well, look, we're trying to maximize the number of lives we save. Um, let's turn our attention to existential risk to humanity, things that might wipe out humanity for all time, a, an engineered pathogen that's so cl- diabolical it kills everybody, artificial intelligence off the leash finds a way to destroy us, climate change maybe. Uh, an asteroid strike. They make a list of these things and they assign probabilities to any these things happening. A- and where these probabilities come from or the, you know, anybody's, they seem preposterous to me, but they're, they're numbers that are out there and they argue about the numbers. But once you do that, once you say, I don't know, there's a one in a thousand chance that, uh, that, uh, that are one in 10,000 chance that artificial intelligence might wipe out mankind. Um, and you do the math that, Wiping out all of mankind is wiping out a lot of people, even if it's a low probability, um, and it's all people for all time. How can you pay attention to living human beings in Africa when you could spend your time instead reducing the risk of that? And so all of their attention and all of their giving starts to move to that. And that that's where you really, it really, the whole thing jumps the shark in a way that I, that... Yeah, it really does. It's funny because I was finishing the book this week and I was also reading and writing a little bit about um, uh, a billionaire called Chuck Feeney who died this yes. week. who made wonderful gave character. Away, gave away and all, his, all his money. Is he Irish? All his money, Irish-American. There we and go. And he, lo- he gave a lot of money... In, in a lot of countries, including Ireland, more than a billion euro in Ireland, which is definitely by far the biggest act of philanthropy ever in, in, in this country, to universities and hospitals, and ended up living in a rented apartment with a pull-down bed. Right. Um, and that, I'm not a great fan of philanthropy as a, you know, I'd prefer if people paid their taxes and people could then make political decisions about what to do with the yep. money. But that was a pretty good example of philanthropy at its best. Yeah, I agree. This kind of, I don't buy it. It, 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 it looks like bullshit to me. I mean, it, it really does, you know? It's like precocious 12-year-olds it, sitting around, you know, making up things in their heads. Really. So you, if you, you've read the book, you see I, I don't make a great deal of effort to defend it, yeah. and I make some fun of it, but it's, um, let's, let's just for fun, just for the hell of it, rather than you and me just rip into it, ripping into it, let me try to just defend it a little bit. Um, Sure would be nice if people with vast resources did address the, the, pa- the threat of pandemics. Governments aren't doing it. Even after COVID, uh, that w- there is a, something very obvious to do. 
And the very obvious thing to do is to create a kind of global weather service for disease prediction and control. Could be done. It's expensive. Um, so sure it would be nice if someone did that. Sure, sure was interesting that um, these people identified artificial intelligence as a problem years ago, five, six years, and, and thinking about it and some, and moved, it, 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 if, and now all of a sudden it's front of mind. You know, they were ahead of that. You can't, so that was, it wasn't, it, has, it wasn't useless they were doing what they were, what, what, what they were doing. It was, but it was monomaniacal, and I agree. What happens, what happens to me when I hear it? Uh, is um, is I think well you've kind of you've kind of divorced the the act of helping other human beings from the feeling from the feeling for other human beings. Yeah. you've turned life into a math problem. Sure, and who does this? It's kind of people are on the spectrum. It, well, and, yeah, and, and there's and, a lot of that. That's, in, a, that's in the well, that's what's yeah. going on here. Yeah. It's sort of like it's a, this is a way through life. And last last order of defense, where are these people going to go in their heads if they aren't here? Like what? What? Where do these? Where do people like this end up? As their role, the kind of role they play, their relationship to humanity. If they aren't in this space, they tend to become libertarians. Mm. They tend to be Peter Thiel. They tend to be I don't care about other people at all, and I'm going to live for myself. And that's that you know, and it, it, and self, and they, they they elevate selfishness to a kind of principle or a religion, and given a choice. I think I'd prefer the. Okay, effect. I can buy that. I don't think it's a great choice, but I mean, another, no, another, another way of looking at it might be that they're a symptom of a very modern disease, which is on the one hand, people are incredibly frustrated that it seems impossible to address these big questions. There's mm. a kind of sclerosis in government and things. You've mm. written about, about about some of those subjects subjects in the past. And on the other hand, you have this creation of this new super elite of super rich people who become, accumulate these these unimaginable sums of money. Very fast. Very fast. And, and kind of uh, you know, assume these kind of godlike properties in their own visions of themselves that just because they managed to take a piece of technology and disrupt the taxi industry that therefore they can <laughs> they can change the world for the better you know um so all these musks and bezoses and 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 all the rest of them Sam Bankman-Fried almost looks like the next stage in the evolutionary process in perfect of, of description that. yeah i think this is absolutely true and you're getting at you know one of the things that it just seems problematic about modern life and modern capitalism that this kind of the relationship, the power of the individual in relation to the institutions have gotten out of whack. That that, that you you have people doing things that really should that should be institutionalized. Elon, I mean, Elon Musk is a great example. War in the Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are in, are are launching a counterattack with drones on the Russians, and it's up to Elon Musk to decide whether he enables Starlink so that the drones can function. Yeah. this is insane. You know that he's more important than the U.S. State Department in this war. Uh, th- that's a that's a microcosm of the of the issue. And Sam Bankman-Fried was gunning to play that role in other spheres of life. So I'm not defending the world the way it is. I'm not really even defending effective altruists. But if you force me to make the argument, I'd say, well, at least it's better that they care about humanity than they don't at all. Uh, you know that, and and and, it, it, and when people are coming at problems from a different angle maybe they'll generate solutions that you might not otherwise see. And until governments get their act together, it's better that somebody's thinking about this and throwing money at it than nobody. Uh, I, I should say that the book is very funny at times. In fact, it kind of reads as a satire, almost in the style of Tom Wolfe, who's a sort of forebear of yours, yeah. of, of your sort of writing, of, of, of kind of 
money and power and hubris so and how they say, work. It's in funny our you world. say this because this, after my first two hours with Sam Bankman Fried, my first thought was this is walking social satire. That this is this is this is what he's going to enable me to do. That it's it's preposterous. You know, th- this kid who who in any other time in history would have been like a high school math teacher who is clearly not understood by the people who are doing business with him and doesn't particularly care about them uh, and is has become overnight because he has this pile of $22.5 billion, the center of everybody's attention. And he's touching all these systems and stress testing all these systems. He's going to put a billion dollars into, he becomes Biden's second biggest donor. donor. He's going to put a billion dollars into the presidential election. He's talking about paying Donald Trump $5 billion not to run for president and negotiating with the Trump people about this. Do you that, think that could have worked? No, it wouldn't have. You know what, no, I don't think you know so. what would have happened, right? What would have happened? We'd have taken so, the money and run anyway. That's exactly what he would have done. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's unenforceable. It's yeah. probably illegal. It's probably because I think it's a bribe. But um, And they hadn't gotten that far with, but he had other effects. And so I saw this per- that he was he he was insinuating himself into not just American politics and not just global ph- philanthropy and not just global finance, sort of global culture, you know. That and celebrities wanted to be his friend. Wall Street tycoons wanted to hear what he had to say. So obviously that's and, partly because he's become he's the richest young person in right. the world, and also because, and this is very Tom Wolfish, he's the new thing. That's right, isn't he? You yeah, know. he's the new thing, and yeah. er, nobody understands this crypto force. Everybody's yeah. it, it, it could just be a. It seems to me mostly a tulip bubble craze. Yeah. I mean, there's another thing going on there. It's not just a tulip bubble craze. There is a technology there, but on top of it, a tulip bubble craze happened, and everybody's worried about missing out on that. And the and the, the my interest in crypto actually was galvanized only by it, it when it was just crypto, and there was a few billion dollars of it, and people were trying to sell it as something that was going to change the world, and it didn't seem to me it was going to change the world anytime soon. I wasn't that interested. When there's $3 trillion of it and you had people who had $22, $22 billion fortunes, I thought, this is going to have social consequences. Yeah, and one of the things that's so funny in the book, you know, as always happens when large amounts of money appear, you know, the, the carrion birds and the scavengers start circling, and, you know, he spends money on ludicrous things. There's a hilarious sequence with Anna Wintour of Vogue where she's trying to get him, I think, basically just to fund the Met Ball as far as, as, far as I can see. Yeah, so this person who is the single worst dressed person in the history of humanity, <laughs> who looks like he's fallen out of a dumpster, is thrown onto a Zoom call. I was in the, this was a scene I, that, I, that, I, that happened very early on in my travels with Sam Bankman-Fried, that we're in a hotel room in Los Angeles. He says, ah, there's this person I'm supposed to have a Zoom with. I say, can I just sit and watch? And I sit off to one side, and onto the onto his screen pops Anna Wintour, editor of Vogue magazine, the queen of global fashion. Mm-hmm. And Sam has no idea who he is. He's, He's never he, seen the Devil Wears Prada. Never seen the Devil Devil's Wear, Wears Prada. Has is googling her while he's talking to her, and at the same time, whenever she's on the screen on the Zoom, he's trying to let her do all the talking. Because he's playing this video game called Storybook Brawl, which he does all the time. Like he'll do it even when he's doing live television interviews. He'll, he'll be, he'll be on his video, Storybook Brawl, mm-hmm. and so you, you're hearing Anna Wintour describe in grand in grand terms this Met Gala and how important it is to the world, and blah blah blah. And on the screen, a minotaur is attacking a dragon, and 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 trees with hatchets are coming out of the left, and blood is flying everywhere, and and the game's going so fast, and Sam is in, is focused on that. And saying words to her, 
they kind of track the conversation, but it's clear he's not really even listening until she'll, she'll trick him. She'll say like, what do you know about the Met Gala? And he'll go, oh, oh, interesting question. And he'll hit a button and up pops the Wikipedia page of the Met Gala. And he'll skate through that. And then the minute he's, he's said enough that she'll take over, he's back to his game. So he's basically the irritating teenager at the dinner table who won't lift their head from their phone. I would, it's, it's worse. Yes, and. It, it actually, his brain, I think his brain couldn't function doing one thing. It was always, it had become addicted to distraction. And he, like he can't, it's, it's on, it took me a while to get used to being with him. He, he can't, he can't do what you and I are doing right now. He would be, he would be shuffling a deck of cards. He would be looking at his phone. If he wasn't, if you've made him, he, on, when he's on a witness stand, he's going to have to sit there and do one thing. His, he'll fidget, his, you'll see a physical discomfort because his brain has gotten so used to being two places at once. And the way I interpreted it was he kind of needed two realities to function in, 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 in the world, that he needed this reality of, a, of a, video, a fantasy life, a video game. At the same time, he's playing this other game, which is real life, which he's decoded and reconstructed as a video game. He's, what he's doing in business and his interactions with people are, are a game. He's gamified it. Um, he didn't, when he's a kid, he doesn't know, he, he has, he has no ability to make facial expressions. It's one of the things, one of the things he said he most weirdly couldn't do. He, he learns with a mirror the kind of facial expressions you need to do to make other people feel comfortable so he can have social interaction. I suspect they're not that comforting, those facial expressions. They are. Know? They're not. I tell you, it's not that bad. It's, okay. I mean, it, it, it was, but I catch him at a very later, at a later stage. When I meet him, he's 29 years old. When yeah. you talk to people who knew him when he was 17, it was bad. Uh, and he, he, he said, you know, he's, he was born without the usual complement of human feelings. And, and he, he knew it. It's like a kind of absence in himself. And he, he replaced the mechanisms that the, most of us have and most of these emotional mechanisms with, um, with math and reason to, and, and calculation to get through life. Would it be too pretentious to describe what you're describing there is that he's a kind of an avatar of modernity or of a, to me, slightly terrifying future where everybody lives at least two or multiple di different lives and the one which they live in this physical world is perhaps not the most important one. Like a matrix. Yeah. yeah exactly. no, I, so I did think that a little bit. I also thought um, when I was thinking about the kind of breadcrumbs I, the reader might follow to their own conclusions, what I loved about the story was that, was there were so many ways this, a reader who read this might respond that, that it's fun to maximize the volatility of the reader's response. So it's sort of like maximizing the volume of shouting in a book club that it has to read the book, that eight people will read it and they'll be shouting at each other different things about what the book means or what it says or what we should think about it. it one of the things that, that, the, that the story, it kind of jumps out of the story is a foreshadowing of dystopic artificial intelligence. Like one, one, one AI dystopia is that we give AI instructions to do something, but we don't tell it exactly how to do it. And we just say, this is your mission, go figure it out. And it does it in a horrible way. So you tell it to go make you a reservation at your favorite restaurant for tomorrow night, and it goes out and it sees that the restaurant's fully booked, and it starts murdering people to open up a table for you. This feels a little bit like what Sam Bankman-Fried did. It's sort of like on a mission, save humanity, 
from existential these existential risks generate a trillion dollars so you can you can you can push it into these problems but no guardrails about how you do it and uh, n- and no feeling about the consequences uh, the, the human consequences about how how you do it um, that was one I wondered if some readers were going to come away with that feeling like I just saw some 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 trial run of a weird future one something I mentioned at the at the start was that this is, you know, this is unusual for you to do a story that is so much in the public glare, in the public moment. Mm. And, uh, and and I've been looking with interest at reactions to the book mm-hmm. since it was published uh, almost day and date with the start of the trial, which I, pre- I presume was was intentional. And there's, you know, you've been the subject of a lot, oh, of, a lot yeah, of these. Yeah. You, you, you have kind of put yourself in the spotlight yeah. in a way that you were, that, that you haven't always been. And it's caused people to, you know, to look at your, uh, to look at your methods, yeah. you know, of, of, of the way you approach telling these stories, mm. your relationship with your subjects, and some of them to be quite critical. Yeah. Um, what's it like to be sort of in the mix in a way that that, that you aren't you aren't usually expected in this case? Was it? Okay. Yeah, because it was a lynch mob for him. You know, the, the mob had already decided instantly just how guilty he was and why he was guilty, and he was a villain. Yeah, and uh, and you couldn't be close to the situation not just me but the people who worked around him who lost all their savings they 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 have the same feeling they read the book and say yeah that's him uh that that it was more nuanced than this is just like a crook uh, he wasn't born a crook and he i and so i knew that if i introduced that nuance in a narrative the people who had their own narrative based on a lot less information than i had were going to be outraged and that, so th- I knew that was going to happen. So they and think I, you're advocating for him. In fact, they, I think, it, in, some, in some cases, they think you're part of the defense team. Yeah, really. which is silly because the only people who are going to in the courtroom who are going to get actual facts out of this that are useful to them are the prosecutors. And uh, there's that there's going to be stuff that's almost surely going to come up in the next couple of weeks from the book, and the prosecutors will raise it. And, and the jury aren't they, allowed to read the book. The jury aren't allowed to read the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so I was just, what I did that was radical was I withheld my judgment. I didn't withhold judgment. I just let other characters express the judgment, people who were closer to the situation even than I was, and they were harsh on him. So the the the, the two characters at the end who worked inside the firm who delivered just just withering judgments of Sam Bankman-Fried. It's just not me. I just let them say it. But um, but the yeah the reaction I've had this I've had a similar reaction a couple of times to books. When I published Moneyball, there was a war for the first few weeks about that, and it was because it was there was a tribe of old sports writers and scouts and people who thought they knew the sport. And were offended by the idea that some outsider had come in and written this story that suggested there was a new way to do this or a new way to think about it. And it was ugly. It was just confined to the American sports world, though. When I wrote uh, Flash Boys, there was a small but extremely well-funded sort of machine uh, to attack the the story funded by high-frequency traders. It Mm. was like he doesn't know what he's talking about. The stock market's not rigged like this. It was, and it, those were different experiences because there was some counterweight in the culture to it, and there is counterweight here too, but it's a different kind of counterweight. And, and the world was different then as well. The yeah, way that the, the discourse operates so, now is so, different. So yeah. the noise, or the noise, would have been, I bet, with Moneyball, quite similar if Twitter existed the way it does now. Uh, there would have been, it would have been ugly and nasty. 
Um, I mean, it's prompted some quite thoughtful pieces. Well, I mean, I read a piece in the New Yorker. You probably read it, or I don't know if you did. So I don't read any of the. You don't look at this stuff. Yeah, you're probably uh, right. But but the New Yorker's apparently that's probably a more considered thing because it's it's came out seven days after the book was published instead of 20 minutes after the book was published. The book yeah. was embargoed, so people couldn't read. We're talking about a book that was published 11 days ago. I know. And you couldn't get your hands and on it. And then it's, it's hot take city and, and, every, 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 there everywhere. There are 50 unverified I, reviews. I'm going to read the New Yorker quote because <laughs> yeah. I think you might find it interesting. Uh, in any Michael Lewis book, this writer says, the immense satisfaction of narrative and detail are the notable, are, are the table stakes. What differentiates this one, which may one day be regarded as either the pinnacle or the nadir of his career, is his personal exposure in the reputational market. Do you think there's any truth in that? Not really, because I don't. Yeah. It's not like I say he's innocent or guilty. Sure. You know, yeah. it's it's it's. Uh, so I don't render a verdict. Yeah. I leave it to. The I mean, I think we can take it that the New Yorkers read the book, but most of the people creating heat around this probably haven't even got to read the book yet, have they? Uh, correct. Yeah. Oh, correct. And most, most, the loud noise, the, the loud bang, you probably didn't hear it here, but the loud bang that went off a week ago Tuesday was a bang that was uninformed by the actual reading of the book. It was informed by a sure. TV show. So 60 Minutes, the big television show, uh, did a big takeout on the book uh, two days before the book came out. And um, they were, I think there were two things I said that triggered a lot of people. And one, one, one that you can argue about, one you can't. The, the, but the one that, uh, the, the first one was that FTX was actually a gold mine. It was actually a solid business, and he screwed it up with his hedge fund on the side. That, that's one of the things that's so strange about this story is that his wealth was all wrapped up. His $22.5 billion was his stake in FTX. And this mad gambling operation he had on the side should never have been there. And if it hadn't been there, FTX would still be up and running and it would be fine. And that's so made it different. It's distinguishing it from, say, uh, Bernie Madoff, that, where there is no b real business there. And, and that, I, I, that's not, that, so that's not to say this isn't a financial scandal. It's to say it's a different kind of financial scandal. And that bothered people because they'd already put him in the Bernie Madoff box. And they, they didn't like that it was going to be more complicated. The other thing I said was, that asked the television presenters asked me, did he steal the money? And I thought that's not quite right because the money's still there mostly. It seems like maybe even more than the money's still there. He, what he did is he granted himself a free loan without telling people. And so it was, it was, that doesn't make it right, but it's just different. And in saying it's different, it just offended a lot of people who had staked them, their own reputations on their view of this thing without knowing as much as I knew. So, uh, that caused some. That caused a little. It's kerfuffle. also isn't it? It's the world's first great Gen Z scandal. One of the notable things about all these characters when things fall apart, uh, and is they all run home to their parents. Well, so I think it is the world's. I think it's the world's first financial scandal where everybody involved was when it blew up in their parents' basement the next night. <laughs> and no, that it. So it does that again. It's just different. Like it's. And I, what I don't understand is why people don't take pleasure in what is different about it rather than try to force it into some pre-existing narrative. Try to see it for what it is rather than what they would like it to be. And Because what, what it is is still bad. You want him in jail, you're going to get him in jail. It, it, I'm not going to keep him out of jail. He may go to jail for the rest of his life. That There's nothing I can do about that. But how you feel about it might be a little different if you know the whole story. And for whatever reason, that's threatening. And I, I haven't quite put my finger on why that's threatening. 
As to my methods, let's talk about that in a minute because this is interesting to me. My methods here are no different from my methods every other book. It's just this person is radioactive. That so the I, subject changes, the method remains exactly, exactly the same. Exactly the same. I, do my, mm. I worm my way into these people's lives and I become invisible on their wall and I watch. And I don't, when I go in... I get the impression he wouldn't have noticed you anyway. No, he's exactly right. He has no interest. He was perfect in for this. Yeah. He was perfect <laughs> for this because he just, he was so indifferent to me. Uh, and that the minute it was, the minute the algorithm said... Okay, he's in. Then it moved on. It didn't re. It didn't ever reevaluate my presence, and um, and I I spent a a year and two months just observing and interviewing not just him but all the people around him and the venture capitalists who lent him money and all that stuff, building it, trying to figure out what the story was before it blew up. And I didn't start writing it until January, so I, I didn't I didn't figure out what it, what I was doing until until. After everything is that bad. a very tight deadline in terms of your working processes? Or? It's, it's you know I it's exactly the same as every book is taken. Okay. That normally it's with the for me the, the unknown is how long it's going to take me to the point where I'm confident to write uh, that I and I can't when I and that to me is when I know the end of the book like when I know how the story ends I know how to start it and but and that can take that that process can take years and sometimes it can take six months. Uh, the writing is always about six months. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I can usually tell the publisher, I'll give it to you in six months. And I've never missed that. That's about, the books are all about the same length, 700, 800 words a day. I, once I get writing, I'm, I can do that. Uh, so I started at the end of January and I finished it August the 15th. Um, and I felt actually it was kind of a leisurely pace. It wasn't, I didn't, I didn't feel rushed at all. Uh, and when I was done, I thought, when I was done, I had one thing that was unusual about this. Um, normally when I'm done, I'm not looking at the cutting room floor and agonizing about what I left out. Because the, but normally I see, well, that material down there, that's kind of second rate. Or I, I, I'm not going to – the material on the cutting room floor was – there was a rollicking second comic novel in it. There was just hmm. stuff that just didn't – it didn't need to be in the story – um, the story kind of told me what needed to be in it, but there was just so, the material was so good. And I, so I was, and that feeling, it's what you dream about as a writer. You, you, you dream that you were limited not by the quality of the material, but just by your own powers. And that's what I felt. I'm limited by my powers. And you, you have a podcast on the same subject, which, which is, there's about 20 episodes or so of it up, it, I it's think. A, right? It's a, a podcast in which I'm missing in action. And it is a grotesque act of misrepresentation to even call it my podcast okay. because it's being done by my producers because I'm out here yakking away about this book. You're still, you're still, like, still your voice always, is still I heard. I don't, I, don't, I don't have time to talk on my podcast, but in, but I'm a start to reengage with it. Yeah, I, it, I heard you complaining to your producer because you can't even be at the trial because so, of course it's just where you should be yeah, right now, but so, you're out plugging the book. So I do have a, I have a podcast called Against the Rules, where it, which narrative nonfiction, it's scripted. Yeah, that's different. That thing sure. I do throw myself into, and I love doing it. But this is a insta podcast on the trial and my producer is in the courtroom every day making me envious because you know to me that so sam is the main character of the book but there are seven or eight other characters who are subsidiary characters who are drawn and very interesting and very interesting mm -hmm. and 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 half these people at least and maybe all of them are going to take the stand um and and to see your characters in, in that situation in that kind of cauldron it's just it's it's almost like seeing characters from a novel come to life in the world. 
uh, it, there's something about it, and I really would wish I was there. And I'm probably going to go at the end of October and sit in the courtroom. And I suppose then I have to, I have to ask finally. I mean, is is this edition the ending of Sam of of Sam for you? Because obviously the story is you know is, is just there's about to take a, a major twist. There's a, a second a third story. Act so second I, act. so I, so I thought that this story was the rise and fall of this dream, this kind of fantasy he had about what life was going to be, mm. and when that collapsed, that that was the end of that story. And the trial has felt like a whole separate maybe little book. Uh, it, it, it certainly had an addendum at the end, but it feels like its own story, and. Uh, I'll just see how it plays out. Uh, But given that he's a utilitarian rationalist and he knows how to calculate the odds on things, he knows that the odds in this trial are that he's almost certainly toast. Yes, he does. But you know what's interesting is his calculation of the odds are different than my calculation of the odds or your calculation of the odds, I bet. So there are what we would call priors. Like what's what's the likelihood of anybody who's charged with a federal crime in the United States getting off? It's less than half of 1%. Last year, 77,000 cases get brought. 99.6% of them end in either a, a guilty plea or conviction. Wow. So you're, you, if you, you do not want to be on the receiving end of the federal government in a criminal case. You just don't. It just the, the odds are it's stacked against you in all kinds of ways. Unlimited resources, p- greater powers than to call witnesses, a general prejudice from the judge usually – uh, the jury thinks, why is the government bringing the case if it isn't true? You know, it's just like the, the, that one thing after another. Um, so already, I would have said, I would have said, well, you're, you're prior. The prior, one in 200 is, your, is about as good as is your odds are going to be. Are you, and are you in the, in the pile of, um, of cases, are you more or less likely than the average case to be acquitted? Obviously less. Like you have three colleagues getting up and saying that you're guilty. Uh, you have the world hating you. Nobody believes your story. Uh, you're an author who just tells the story is attacked for telling the story rather than because he hasn't lynched you inside of his own in the, in the book. This seems to me you are on the less likely end of the spectrum. So I would put the odds at one in ten thousand. So why not cut a deal? He puts the odds going. He put the odds going in at, at one in ten. Okay. And he still puts the odds at. At, he thinks he has a three. He, I just heard uh, through lawyers a three percent chance of getting off. So this is this tells you what does this tell you? It tells you something about Sam Bankman Free, but it tells you something about assigning odds. It's a lot of BS in it. Like you can just say yeah. the odds, whatever or whatever you want them to be. And I don't know what his argument is, but it's not a good one. Uh, so he is over. So he he, he misjudged, I think, his odds, and um, in the first place, in the second place, um, the. And this is going to sound, you got to just believe me on this. I think he genuinely thinks he's innocent. He's behaved like he, he's behaved that way from the very beginning. Didn't try to run. I don't think he's hidden any money anywhere. Could be wrong about that. But he doesn't have, he's put, he's put himself in harm's way right from the beginning and has basically taken the attitude with the government that I won't accept Maybe I'd accept six months of house arrest or something. That, but basically, was not willing to even talk to them because he thought, "I'm innocent. I'm gonna, I'm gonna demonstrate my innocence." Third, third, and the one thing he's doing that's really quixotic, he's gonna testify, and and defendants almost never do that. Get on up on the witness stand. He he's so sure of this, so he has a different view of reality than everybody else, and that I think, and, and always has had, always has, always, yeah, yeah, I think so. 
I think so. So that's so it's a again it's a peculiar situation, peculiar story. So do you envisage uh, a sequel or additional chapters? I will certainly write something about the trial, and it's just the, the judicial. It's it's been an interesting window for me on the judicial system, and if it gets a lot more interesting, maybe something maybe something longer than a than a afterward to the paperback. The book is called Going Infinite, Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon by Michael Lewis. It's published by Alan Lane. Michael, thank you so much for Thanks coming for in today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.